The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 today. We'll read through verses 3 to 17 as we continue our series in this wonderful book. As you open with me to 1 John 2, I want you to think about how you might prove to me that you were really genuinely from Maryland. Perhaps you could tell me of your love for crabs or how you put Old Bay on your Old Bay or how you fly high the greatest flag in America. Or perhaps you could share of your intimate experience with horrific commutes and traffic, the insane cost of living, and then just the overall breakneck pace of life that seems to be the norm here in Maryland. (laughs) These are just a few ways, but ways that you can know for sure that you are indeed from here. Um, This idea of how you can know something about yourself, where you're from, what group you may or may not be a part of, it's an interesting one, and it's actually the subject of our passage today. Uh, how, specifically, how you can know that you are a follower of Jesus. John does something similar to what we just did with Maryland in that he's going to provide us a series of tests of assurance that we can be sure that we are indeed Christians, followers of Christ. Now, before we even begin to get started, it is incredibly important that we understand and read today's passage in light of last week's passage. You see, John starts this letter by telling us that God is light. That is his key message. God is light. And he, he bookends that message by beginning with a prologue to show us that he's speaking about Jesus. He wants to draw us into fellowship with God and with one another. And then on the other side of this key message, he defends the truth of that message against false teachers. If you recall, they were making these claims where, among other things, they said that, well, we can walk with God and still remain in darkness, and we have no sin. But to those things, John says, no. To walk with God who is light means to walk in the light, not in darkness. And that we lie if we say we have no sin Because God sent Jesus to save us from our sins, to be our advocate, our propitiation, which is to cleanse us from sin. And so, our response to that is to confess that sin to God, who is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. This is the core, this is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is how we enter into relationship with God. So, now he's going to turn his focus to how... How can we know that we're in relationship with God? How do I know that I am truly a follower of Jesus? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Ever considered if you are truly in Christ, as as Paul uses uh, that language so often in Scripture. A natural question to ask for sure, a normal desire to have, to want to be sure of your standing before God. And so that's what John focuses on here. If I had to summarize this whole passage, it's that we have assurance of our relationship with God and how we live for God. So we're going to try to unpack that and read through this 
passage, but uh, let's once again go before our Lord in prayer. Father, I am so blessed to be able to be here with these people, with your word open. What a joy it is to be able to spend this time now uh, learning more about you, reading about your glory, and how we might live for you and know that we are in you. God, open our hearts, give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, move among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 John chapter 2, picking up in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In these verses, John gives us four answers to our question of how do we know that we have a relationship with God? And these four answers will seek to point us to the assurance that we can have. Uh, so let's start back with verse 3 with his first answer. Keep God's commandments. Read verse 3 with me again. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So he, he lays it out very straightforwardly and in a positive sense. We know that we are in God, if we keep his commandments. But then he's going to give us the negative side of that. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So in, in the same way that last chapter we saw this idea of light and dark and no in-between, we're going to see that duality here on display in our passage again. Here we have keeping God's commandments and not keeping God's commandments. No in-between. John's going to unpack this, continuing in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, keeping commandments, keeping his word, walking in the same way that he walked, those are all just different ways of describing the same thing. He's saying you can have assurance of your relationship with God if you look at your life and you see one of obedience to God's commandments, of submission to his word, of aligning your life with his. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, 
my works righteousness alarm bell is starting to go off. I'm like, okay, hold, hold on, John. I, I thought we were saved by grace through faith alone and that there's not anything that we can do to earn our salvation. This kind of sounds like you're telling me I have to work in order to earn my relationship with God. What's up with that? I think those are fair questions, but the, the answer comes fairly quickly when we understand that John is talking to people who are already saved who are already followers of Christ. That's why it's so important that we remember chapter 1 before we get too deep into chapter 2. This here, obedience to God's commandments, is simply one of the signs, one of the marks of the fact that we are already saved. Maybe I can give this analogy. Anyone like giving gifts? Trying to get creative and think of something that that person will enjoy and that you can afford? Um, it, it's it's fun to give a thoughtful gift, say, to your spouse. It's a way to say that you love them. It's, it's a sign of the marriage that you share. But your marriage does not hinge on you giving them gifts. You're not more married if you give more gifts, and you're not less married if you don't give as many gifts. Gift giving is just one way to demonstrate what is already true. You are married and you love your spouse. In a much bigger way, our obedience to God's commands does not determine whether or not we have a relationship with him. It's a sign that we already have one. It's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And now just real, real quick here, neither John nor, nor Jesus, for that matter, are calling for perfect obedience to God's commandments. We saw in John 1, First uh, John chapter 1, the serious dangers of thinking that we are free from sin. And so the standard here is neither sinlessness nor perfection. It is the faithful pursuit of keeping his commandments. Have you ever seen a baby take her first steps? What happens after like step four? <laughs> Down. How do the parents respond? Do they go, you dumb baby, I can't believe you only made it to four steps. Don't you know your brother made it to five? they're overjoyed they pick her back up and say keep going don't stop come on you can, let's keep going now of, of course we want to see growth and and progress in our lives over time as we grow in our relationship with god but but god's standard for us is not perfection he doesn't it's pursuit and as we pursue him we can have assurance that we are living for him and have a relationship with him and one last thing we've got to figure out in this section, what are the commands of God? What is his word that we're supposed to keep? What, what does it mean? What does it look like for me to walk in the same way in which he walked? The simplest answer I can give you is, is scripture. To open up the word of God and to seek to mold our lives to how it calls us to live. There, there really is just no substitute for spending time reading, meditating on, and applying God's word to our lives. Each of us who are believers in Jesus must be in the Word regularly, deeply. Not just, oh, well, I'm doing a Bible plan, so I read a chapter and I check a box and I move along. What did you just read? I don't know. No, we want to marinate in the text. We want to prayerfully consider how we can live it out in our lives. And then specifically, as we read Scripture, as we dive into it, we look to Jesus I mean, he's the one who John has in mind here when he talks about walking in the same way in which he walked. So, so let's analyze Jesus' life and consider ours in comparison. Is there overlap? Well, great. 
Increase those areas. Grow them. Is there difference? Oh, well, Jesus does this, but I've, I've never done, done that. Okay, well, now we know where to get to work. We are to keep God's commandments. One particular commandment that John's going to turn to now is uh, our second point, love one another. Look at verse 7 with me. Beloved, fitting way to begin a section on loving one another, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John gives us a bit of a paradox here, doesn't he? It's like what he said last week when we looked at how he's writing so that we do not sin. Yet if you do sin, we have Jesus, our advocate and propitiation to save us from our sin. The command that he's focusing in on here is no new command. It's an old one. And yet at the same time, it is a new commandment. So how, how can it be all those things at, at once? Well, when we hear John use that phrase, new commandment, that should set off a signal in our heads and point us like an arrow back to his gospel, specifically chapter 13 of the gospel of John. Uh, it's, it's the Last Supper. Jesus is in the upper room. He's getting ready to go into the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And here's what he says to his disciples in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, the first part, at least, of this new commandment is not new at all. We, we've known since Leviticus 19 that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, Jesus takes this old commandment that you, John says, had from the beginning and makes it new in, in a few key ways. So I'm going to give you three. Three ways that Jesus makes this old commandment new. First, it's new in the standard Jesus uses. This is something Jesus often does. Do you, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he keeps saying over and over again, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you? In each case, he increases the standard of the command. Don't murder. Well, I say, don't be angry. Don't commit adultery. Well, well I say to you, don't even look with lustful intent. Here, with this command, Jesus shifts the standard from love your neighbor as yourself to love one another just as I have loved you. And of course, he loved us even unto death. That is our new standard, which in a way makes it a new commandment. The second way it's new is in the extent Jesus gives. Leviticus calls us to love our neighbor, uh, which one lawyer used to ask Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus responded with the parable of the Good Samaritan to radically expand the definition of neighbor. In our text here in 1 John, uh, John specifically applies it to our relationships within the church because he's writing to the church. So that means that we are to love each and every brother and sister in Christ we have in this church without exception. Well, they live on the other side of the county and they're much older than me and that no exceptions. The third way this commandment is new is in its continually fresh application. What it looks like for us to live this out, to love one another as Jesus loved us, well, that looks different every day. It can be providing meals when someone's sick, making a phone call or writing a card when they haven't joined us for worship in a while, 
taking someone to lunch, investing in a discipling relationship with them. We could go on and on in how we live this out, but this is the old yet new commandment that John is giving us. It's true in Jesus. He's the one who modeled it. And it's true in us, the church, as we live it out. He explains it a bit further in verses 9 to 11. So let's look at those. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He gives us a bit of a, of a love-hate sandwich kind of a thing. Uh, first, we see that you can't walk in the light if you hate your brother. But in order to abide in the light, you love your brother. Because if you hate your brother, well, then you're still in darkness, which although is passing away and the true light is already shining, the darkness isn't totally gone yet. You've heard Pastor Brian talk a number of times about this idea that we live in the state of already but not yet. So Christ has already come. God is already making all things new, but it is not yet fully realized. The darkness is still here. And if you hate your brother or your sister, then you are still in it. Last week, we saw how essential our relationship with one another is to our relationship with God. So it's no surprise that John comes back to that theme here regarding assurance, having assurance of our relationship with God. So if you want to know that you are in Christ, love your brothers and sisters in the church and do so as Jesus has loved you by caring for them to the point of self-sacrifice. So this is not a love that is just out of abundance in our free time or you know, cherry-picked for the people who are easy to love. This is to the point where it hurts, where we are giving of ourselves for the sake of another. That's what John is calling us to. That's what God's Word is calling us to when it comes to loving them. And, and if I can just press once more here, John does not say, whoever says he loves his brother... No, he says, whoever loves his brother. I I, I doubt anyone here would say, I hate my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I wonder how often our actions almost say just that. Because, I mean, these are are the options we have here, right? Love and hate. There's there's no in-between. So the question for us is, is our heart attitude one of love for our brothers and sisters? Sacrificial, Christ-like love. And then does that heart attitude manifest itself in real, tangible ways in our lives? Our love for one another is the second aspect of the assurance we can have of our relationship with God. Let's move to the third. Stay rooted in the gospel. Look at verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Here, John addresses his readers in three ways. Little children, fathers, and young men. And he does it twice. Not quite identical, but close. And what he's doing is he's 
addressing all of his readers through the lens of the different stages of the Christian life in order to remind them of the foundational, essential gospel truths their relationship with God is built on. Let me try to unpack that. That's, that's a lot. He's, he's reminding them, you can do all these things that we're talking about. Love one another. Keep God's commandments. You can do all these things because you have the gospel. Just Here's what he's reminding them of. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. You know him who's from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. Again, you know him who's from the beginning and you are strong because the word of God abides in you and thus you've overcome the evil one. These are central truths to being a follower of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven, which brings us into right relationship with the Father, the one who's from the beginning. And then, because he places his word in us, we overcome even the evil one. So John is reminding everyone, from the newest Christian to the most experienced, stay rooted in the gospel. And not just the dudes. The language used here, fathers and young men, it's not excluding women. It's just using masculine forms for a mixed group. Like if I were to say, hey, you guys. Or for my Spanish speakers here, when you use eos, describe a group of people, even if there's only one guy, you still use eos. So, so women, John is just as much calling you to remain rooted in the gospel, to lock into these core central truths as you seek to live out your relationship with God. And I so appreciate that these verses are, are here because they show that the, the tests of assurance, and we want to call them that, these, these ways to, to have that assurance of our relationship with God, they're, they're not to be burdensome. The goal here is not for you to leave with a, a long checklist that you have to constantly keep working through or else you start freaking out about whether or not you're really saved. No, we rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Now, yes, we, we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we, we do not want to minimize the deceitfulness of our own hearts or the role sin plays in our lives. But, but, but what all this means is that foundationally, our relationship with God is secure because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything we do. John ten twenty eight. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you believe that? Do you want that? What, what security, what confidence we can have all because of Jesus? As we consider our relationship with God, let us all stay rooted in the gospel. One last answer for how we can know that we have a relationship with God. Do not love the world. Look at that last paragraph uh, for our passage today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John shifts focus from the secure foundation of the gospel to the dangerous relationship we have with the world. His argument is simple enough. Do not love the world. We're going to look at his two reasons why not, why he's going to make this argument. So reason number one, not to love the world. Love of the world is incompatible with love of the Father. Love of the world is incompatible with love of the Father. 
But why? Well, what, what makes love of the world incompatible with love of the Father? Well, that's where verse 16 comes in. It's because all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, John's going to tell us what all that is in the world is, but, but I want to touch just real quick on what it means that it's from the world, not from the Father. And to do that, we need to really understand what he means by this word world, because John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and so God loves the world, but I'm not supposed to? No. So what John is doing here with the word world is, is he's using it to refer to this idea of, of worldliness, uh, of all that is opposed to God everything that goes against his will. Uh, Paul uses it in the same way. A number of places, here's Ephesians 2, 2. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. So it's this sense of the world. So we're not talking about people. We're obviously supposed to love people. We're talking about this system, this structure of that which is against God. And we are not to love it because it's not of God. It's opposed to God, just as the darkness is opposed to the light. So for us, that means there's no, well, a little world here and a little God there, a little world over here, and then, oh, back to God. No, no, you're either a lover of the world or you're a lover of God. No in between. But at this point, it would be helpful to unpack, okay, well, then what is this world? What does it consist of? Well, that's exactly what John turns to, and he gives us three descriptions. Desire of the flesh desire of the eyes, and pride of life. So let's unpack that. Desires of the flesh, not simply physical, sinful desires like gluttony or, or lust, although they're certainly in mind. Um, these are the cravings, the lusts of our sinful humanity as a whole. So it could be something like overeating, or it could be pornography, but it could also be the anger we feel when someone would dare cut us off in traffic, or when we would just much rather hit the snooze button one two three more times or, or watch just one two three more episodes than open up our bibles and spend time in god's word so what are the desires of the flesh that you struggle with and what areas do you feel the pull of those sinful desires more strongly than others second description desires of the eyes this is coveting having sinful desires because of what you see, seeing something, wanting it so much that you, you lose your contentment with God. These are things that, that keep you up at night, that you just keep thinking over, rolling through, that you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling online about idolatrously desiring that which you don't have. If I can pause that real quick and just... The reason why I keep prefacing desire with either sinful or idolatrous is because desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. God is the one who gave us desire. He's the one who made chocolate delicious and marital intimacy wonderful. So, so the problem is not desire per se. Christians are not, or at least we shouldn't be, anti-desire, where all we eat are bran flakes and all we wear is beige and all we read is boring books. That should not be us because we should be for desire because God is for desire. The problem is when that desire becomes twisted, elevated, when it draws us away from God. So in what ways are you prone to these sorts of desires, specifically coveting? What, 
What is it that catches your eye and then stays in the back of your mind all day just thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it? Third description of the world, pride of life. Uh, Maybe your Bible has a little footnote here um, going down to the bottom that says, or pride in possessions. That's that's what John's getting at here. Uh, It's a boastfulness, an arrogance about what you have and what you've accomplished. I think we all know at least one person like this. It's not just that they have nice stuff and have done nice things. It's that that stuff and those things define them, and they're all too happy to let you know about it. But I don't want us to see this as simply a caricature or that one person that we know. Uh, When you get something nice or when you accomplish something, are you tempted to want to make sure others know about it? What kind of story would your Instagram feed tell? In what ways do you seek to impress others by what you've done or what you have or what you've achieved? We need to be careful here. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life all make up the world which is not from the Father and therefore to love it is incompatible with loving God. This is the first reason we are not to love the world. The second reason is because the world is passing away. So we don't love the world because love of the world is incompatible with love of God. And then second, the world is passing away. We see this in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let's rewind a few years and imagine that I come to you for some investing advice. I said, hey, I want to make some big investments. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to put all my money in Blockbuster, MySpace, and Toys R Us. What do you think? Pretty smart, right? No, that would be a terrible investment. Those businesses failed miserably. I saw this week uh, a, a gif of Blockbuster stores going from when the company started to when it failed, and you see no yellow dots on the map, and then lots of yellow dots on the map, and then absolutely none. That would be a terrible investment. Those businesses all failed. They all passed away. It's a, it's a small picture of what John's trying to tell us here. Why would you pursue something so temporary when you can have something that's eternal? I mean, goodness, the world and its desires are more fleeting than a hot Krispy Kreme donut. Again, God is not against us pursuing joy. He's for our joy. In fact, he's for our eternal joy. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The trick is that's not found in the world. I think if we're being honest, we we, we know this. That nothing in this world ever truly satisfies. I mean, that's think about it. That's why no one, when they get their new phone, say, Ha ha! The iPhone 12! I will never want a new phone for all my days! I am satisfied eternally. No! And yet, that appeal is real. We, We do feel good when we treat ourselves, when we indulge. There is pleasure in that moment. Let's be honest about that. But we also have to be honest that that pleasure is only momentary. It doesn't last. It's always waiting for the next new thing, the next hit, the next, you fill in the blank. Now, now this is by no means a new realization. Here's some old folks for you. 1,500 years ago, Augustine wrote, Our heart is restless until it rests in you, Lord. 700 years ago, Thomas Akempis wrote, Thomas Akempis wrote, You can in no manner be satisfied with temporal goods, for you were not created to find your rest in them. 
And then just 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, this is one of those things that we've known for millennia, but we so often fail to know it. We must not settle for the things of this world. They are passing away. They are fleeting. We are to deny the temptations of the sinful pleasures of the world. As appealing as they are, we remember and we act on the fact that they are passing away. And as we do, we open ourselves up to the eternal promises of God and gain further assurance of our relationship with him. Keep God's commandments, love one another, stay rooted in the gospel, and do not love the world. Four answers to the question, how can I know I'm saved? How can I be sure I really have a relationship with God? But remember, please, these only come into play after you have confessed your sins, after you have recognized your need from a Savior, Savior turned from those sins, and trusted in Jesus Christ for that salvation. So here's the question I want to leave you with today. To what are you ultimately entrusting yourself? To what are you ultimately entrusting yourself? Is it your intellect, bank account, your relationships, your connections, your looks, the world's promises of comfort? Or are you entrusting yourself to God's sure guarantee of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Don't rush to answer that. Consider your life. Ask a trusted brother and sister, say, hey, do, do you see evidence of these four things in my life? How, how might I love my brothers and sisters better? Well, what does it look like for me to not love the world and to keep God's commandments? Jesus is better than anything in the whole world. Living for God is better than living for the world. And please don't take my word for it. Ask around. I have never met a single Christian who is disappointed with what they gained in Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. God, take the world. Remove its blinders from our eyes and the lies that it tells us that sure, we can indulge a little here and hold on to this one thing there. God, show us the truth that to love the world is not to love you. God, we want to live for you. You have saved us. We did not deserve it. But in your grace, in your mercy, you've redeemed us. Your son bought us with his blood. And then you raised him to life, showing the victory that he won on our behalf. God, that is the best news ever. May we live every day to make that known and to give you glory for who you are and what you've done.
Holy Spirit, please speak to each heart here, mind first and foremost, that we would be aware of the ways that we have not loved you with our whole hearts, that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. God, we repent. And yet we are well aware that we cannot do those things apart from you. So God, by your Spirit, equip us to these works that you've called us to, that we might glorify you and point others to who you are. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.